Welcome to Littler's podcast, Celebrating Black History Month. My name is Kimberly Dobson, and I'm a shareholder in the Long Island, New York office. With me today are three of my amazing colleagues, and I will ask each of them to provide a brief introduction, starting with Kim Carter. Hi, Kimberly. Thank you very much. My name is Kim Carter. I am a shareholder in the San Diego office and so excited for our conversation today. Thanks, Kim. Next, we have Jason Bird. Thank you so much for being with us today and so excited for the chat. My name is Jason Bird. I'm an associate in our New York City office. Thanks, Jason. And finally, we have Taylor Lawson. Hi, everyone. My name is Taylor Lawson, and I'm an associate in our Memphis, Tennessee office. Thanks, Taylor. The Association for the Study of African-American Life and History establishes a theme each year for Black History Month to help increase public attention to causes that deserve emphasis. This year's theme is Black resistance, and that is what we will be discussing today. We will discuss what it means for each of us, some of the ways that Black resistance has shown up in the legal space, and how it might continue to shape the future of the workforce. So let's jump right in and talk about what Black resistance means to each of us. When I think of Black resistance, I think of the oppression, the racism, and the violence that Black people have endured. I think about all of the people before me who were resilient, patient, and persistent to make sure that I don't have to endure the same things they endured. And then I think about what I'm doing in the present to make sure that in the future, my three kids will be in an even better position than I am currently. So what does Black resistance mean to each of you? Kim, why don't you start us off? Oh, wow, Kimberly, thank you. I First of all, I want to echo that everything you just said, I agree with a million percent. Black resistance for me is very personal. I think that there's a personal experience that's attached to many of us living in this this country in America. So when I think about it, I think about the people who have gone before me as well. I think about family members, but I also think about leaders in the world, essentially, not just in America, but in the world that have shown us a rich and deep legacy of survival and a rich and deep legacy of resilience. So when I think of resistance, I think of I, there's a model that I kind of live by and I teach on this and I share this with my kids and I'm hoping to share this with others. I live by the motto of don't let another's negative perception of you become your reality. And I think that that just pairs so nicely with the idea that no matter how many struggles and obstacles and barriers that were put in place for, for us individually here today and our ancestors, people that have come um, before us, we're still here. Yeah. We're still thriving and we're doing it quite excellently. So when I think about black resistance, I think of power and strength and I think of resilience. That was great, Kim. Thank you so much. Jason, what are your thoughts? I agree with everything that you both have said and talking about people that have gone before me. I think about my grandparents who I was very close with them. I was unfortunately lost both of my grandfathers in the pandemic, but I think about the lessons they learned and and instilled in me. And I think about the stories that they told me. I think about my great-grandfather being the first Black man in Florida to be licensed to operate a fuel oil business. I think about my mom's parents being one of the first Black families in a neighborhood and their children my aunts and uncles desegregating the neighborhood that they still live in to this day. I think about that. I think about how those individuals and 
their tenacity and their resistance, their willingness to not take no for an answer, to keep going, to resist all of the oppression, the racism, the challenges, and overcome, to purchase a home, to start a business, to have a life, and to have a life well-lived, right? We talk about living, but there's a difference between existing and living. And so I think about in terms of Black resistance is moving the ball forward, not taking no for an answer, and realizing that the strength of those that have come before us, not even a long time ago, those folks still live within us, and we hold that power and ability to move forward ourselves. That is great. Thank you so much for sharing, Jason. Taylor, what are your thoughts? So I'm really in line with what everybody has already said. I think one thing that I'll say is that Black resistance is something that is so innate and natural amongst really Black Americans across the country. It's something that I feel like we're all taught and uh, we've had to learn and experience at a very young age. And it's like deeply ingrained in us because of the people that are raising us, the people that have come before us and the examples we've seen through our early years. I'm a Memphis native, so I think back instantly to the sanitation strike and like my great grandmother who had an elementary education but was marching on Washington for workers' rights, different things like that. Those are stories. Those are the things that we carry generation upon generation. And those are the things that kind of have shaped my idea of Black resistance and how I operate today and the things I'll teach my son and share with my siblings and things like that. Oh, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think we've we've all touched about a little bit on how Black resistance has impacted our lives. Also, how has it impacted the work that we do? Anyone want to share that? Jason, I'll start with you. How has Black resistance, you know, you've, you've talked a bit about how it's impacted your life, but how has it also impacted the work that you do? Certainly. Quite honestly, Kimberly, my first time ever in a law firm was when I was going to work as a summer associate for a firm in Florida. Before then, I had never been in a law firm, didn't really know any lawyers, judges. That's just not the background from which I came, which is fine, right? No big deal. But I think about my grandfathers and think about the work that they put in and trying to get me to be able to be at this point, right? And being able to again, overcome in the face of adversity, go to a good law school, get a good job. And so I think about my grandfathers a lot. And I think about how they did not take no for an answer. And I think about how I had to sort of kick and scream my way into different law firms and different spaces and places. And so I think about that and I take that tenacity and that resistance with me in terms of the job, because as lawyers, we have to be zealous, we have to be attentive, we have to be all of these things, right? I like to sometimes say we are responsible for other people's irresponsibilities sometimes. That's just part of the part of the game. So when I think about that and I think about the character of the people that came before me, just in terms of my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and then those before them, when I go to work, I am proud to realize that I am those individuals' wildest dreams, essentially, right? And so it gives me a sense of pride to know that I've been able to get this education to be able to help others or show up in whatever way I can as an attorney. And it also helps in terms of being at Littler because employment law is people. And we as Black people, as a minority, 
we bring a certain vantage point to a certain situation, to any situation really, whether that's a case, whether that's advice and counsel, whether that's a negotiation. And when we think about all of these levels of, and layers of people that came before us and the pride that we feel and overcoming obstacles and making sure that we are able to be our authentic self and making sure that we're bringing that authenticity, which shows up and manifests as being able to, to provide this different vantage point as a, as a black individual. I think that's extremely important. Thank you. What about you, Taylor? How has black resistance impacted the work that you do? Yeah, so for me, I I got into labor and employment law just because, like most people, I wanted to help. But I also was very cognizant of the fact that we spend so much of our time at work. I grew up with parents that worked a lot, and they spent a lot of the time more time at work than they did at home. And I wanted to make better work spaces for the people that spend time at work. And I find, I believe that a lot of Black Americans spend so much time at work, and I want workspaces to be a place where people feel like they can show up as their true authentic selves. They can show up as this and that, and that we don't just stop at the fact that we see them as a, as a Black person, but they get to show up as all that they are, a mom, a sister, a brother, an artist, and an employee. And so I think that Black resistance impacts the labor and employment space because we get to influence the way that organizations make decisions about retention, how they make decisions about inclusivity in the workplace, and just different things like that. And I mean, one thing I think about a lot is like, there's so many justifications for why Black Americans deserve more of an opportunity to be represented in the space and to just excel in the space like you, there's a business justification to it. Say like businesses are better (laughs) when we have diversity in the workplace. And then there's the moral and ethical justifications for having these diverse workspaces. So black resistance shows up in so many facets of the labor and employment space. And I don't know where we'd be without it, honestly. Taylor, I love everything that you said, and it's a really great segue kind of into the next question, which is also, you know, this is a Littler podcast, Labor and Employment Law. So let's take some time to focus on specifically, you know, the Labor and Employment Law arena. And Kim, I would love to hear your thoughts on what do you think that Black representation in Labor and Employment Law, why do you think it's important? Um, I think Taylor touched on some things, but I would love to hear your perspective. Why do you think that Black representation in Labor and Employment Law is important? Sure. Thank you for that question. I'm, and Taylor absolutely jogged my memory and my mind on this topic because as we're employment lawyers and people of color that are practicing management side employment law, we're put in a position where we have the benefit of advising our clients, employers, on positive work culture, following the laws of the land, communicating why those things are beneficial. And Taylor said something that I think was just so on point. She said moral and ethical, right? Moral and ethical realities. We're human beings. We're people. And we should be considered human beings and considered people. Our people should be considered human beings and people in the workspace. All people should be considered human beings and people in the workspace. But not everyone subscribes to that. Not everyone inherently subscribes to the idea that there should be equality 
equity, inclusion, and diversity in workspaces. I have students all the time. I sometimes work as an adjunct professor, or I also volunteer at different law schools. And I have students all the time say, well, how do you as a management attorney convince your clients to do the right thing? Because it's the right thing to do. And there are times when I have to say to them, I don't always convince my clients to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But because I understand the law, because I understand civil rights, because I understand the exposure, I have the ability to advise my clients on the best fiscal decisions, on the best sound decisions that also tend to be the right thing because it's the right thing to do. So what does that mean? That means that we're in a position to tell our clients, this is what the law says. And you get to make the choice on whether or not you'd like to follow the law. But if you do follow the law, then you limit your exposure to other litigation and other penalties and other things that might go in line with the bottom line. So what does representation look like for labor employment from a a very logical standpoint? It looks like fiscal responsibility for many of our clients. But on a greater scale, it is the right thing, right? Equity, inclusion, those are the right thing. And what does that translate? Those are intangible benefits. When you create a culture where people feel safe, where people feel valued, where people feel wanted, where people feel included, overall, the benefits, they're just magnified. That is a better space to work in. So when I think about what Jason said about his parents and his grandparents and all the work that they've done, and I think about Taylor talking about her family, and I think about my own family and all of the places that they've worked. My mom ran multiple businesses and she's worked in multiple laborious jobs. My dad did as well. When I think about those places, I did too. And I was subjected to a lot of racism coming up in the the ranks. When I think about those spaces and how beneficial it would be to have management that understands the law, employs it, and which benefits their bottom line, but also the mental health and the wellness that attaches to us, to the labor force that works in a space where they feel protected. I just, I couldn't be in a better space. And I understand for me, that's what labor and employment law means. And that for me, that's why Black representation and Black resistance is important. And we've now, I, I, I don't know about the rest of you, you can share your thoughts on this or not. I feel like we're in just one of the best eras for being Black in America. There's a lot of work <laughs> that we have to do. There's a lot that has to you know, keep going for our country and our culture collaboratively. But since the summer of 2020, and unfortunately the murder of George Floyd, what we have seen is a reaction in every facet government, in corporations, in education, globally, we've seen a reaction, a reality check of what this country has done and what it has not done for Black people. And now what we've always seen throughout our history is that civil rights, real civil rights is enacted and is actually enforced at the employment and education levels. And so we're on the forefront of that as Black attorneys and Black attorneys that work in management. I'm really excited about what's coming down the pipe. I love so many of the points that you made. Um, I think we frequently hear for as management side attorneys, when somebody finds out that we represent employers, you'll hear things like, well, why aren't you representing, you know, the employee, <laughs> right? We, mm-hmm. we get that a lot. And 
Yeah, where we're working on the dark side, all these things that we hear, if we're just having real talk, these are things that people say to us. And it could just be attorneys even on the other side who will look at us and say, you know, you should be representing employees, not employers. And everything I think that you said is so true. It is so spot on. We need people on both sides effectuating change. And so it's so important. Jason, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to the conversation as it relates to representation in labor and employment law. Yeah. You know, I agree with everything that my colleague Kim mentioned about we spend a lot of time at work, so why not work to try to make that place or those places and spaces the best that we can, right? But I also think there is a level of, and this is something a friend of mine who got into employment law before me mentioned, and I said, why do you, why do you like employment law? Why do you like this? She says, well, I like people, and employment law is people. And when you get to work with a client who, or when a client gets to work with you or vice versa, and there is that shared experience because you two do come from um, a similar background of being black in this, this country, right? I think it makes the job a little bit easier in terms of building a connection and understanding and working with that individual. But I also think it gives us that perspective that is necessary to understand what is going on in an organization. Is this good? Is this bad? Does this organization have a blind spot that we can point out or whatever, what have you? I think that's what makes it important. And so if you like people and if you want to try to effectuate change, at least on the, the corporate side, I think the employment law space and being black at a place like Littler, I think is pretty good. And that's why I think it's, it's important for us to make sure we bring our full authentic selves to these spaces and places, because at the end of the day, people are going to create authenticity in order to do a good job and for people to trust you are you who you say you are? Or are you putting on some other face or some other, are you, who are you, right? And I think that's what, at the end of the day, people are going to crave and will help build success and will help actually demonstrate and effectuate change. Can I just say something to that? Because I'm, Jason, you are 100% full, authentic self. I think many Black people, especially if they're working in the field that we're working in, in law or corporation, or even in education, I think we're taught very early and we've been taught very early for historically in the education realm, even just the way we look is offensive to mainstream. <laughs> and, you know, we've had to for very, you know, for many years change that. And so we're seeing now since 2019, California passed the Crown Act and you've got other states since then, not enough. I think maybe, I think the last count I have was maybe about 15 states in the continental U.S. and then the U.S. Virgin Islands passed the Crown Act and the federal government still is denying it. But literally in 2019 and 20, 21, 22, 23, we have to have a law on the books that says that we can wear our natural hair in the workspace without being fired and our natural hair in the workspace without being kicked out of school. So literally the ability for us to go to work and get an education was dictated on whether or not we were representing ourselves or expressing ourselves in a way that was more Eurocentric than our natural Black selves in the way that God made us. So being able to show up and just really be your true self, 
representing yourself and showing who you are as a human being, one, it's really important for others to see that in the workspace. And that's one of the things that I advise on all the time with my clients, especially in California, because California did pass the Crown Act. You can't discriminate against people for being who they naturally are, for looking the way that they naturally look. You would think that that was inherent but unfortunately, in this country, it, it hasn't been for many, many years. So just something as simple as that, just something as simple as just being who you were born to be. I mean, I don't think there's another group of people on this continent that have to deal with that level of discrimination and the psychological factors that attach to it. So I just, I, I thought that was, thank you for saying that. Mm, thank you for sharing, Kim. And one more thing I'd like to add, like... And this is to employers, clients, like, I think a lot of times we can forget how much your employees, your workforce bring with them into the workspace. So you carry a lot, um, maybe things that are going on with your family, the external factors you bring into the workplace, right? Imagine if we could help create an environment where we know you already bring in a lot in the workspace, but you don't have to worry about whether you have to think about what you say, what you wear, what you look like, what your hair is like. You know, you could just set all of those things aside and fully show up as who you are and just do the work. Because at the end of the day, that should be what we all want, right? To be able to do the work as it was intended to be done. So like, if we can do anything to help create these spaces where we don't have to worry about all the external factors and we can get to a place where we can just do the work, like how much better would society be? Everyone benefits. Full, yeah. authentic self. I think all three of you mentioned it at various times in our discussion so far, and it's so true. Um, but can we go a little deeper, guys? Sure. All right. Yeah. All right. So, um, <laughs> You know, why do you think it's important for us to recognize the contributions that Black resistance has made to other areas of society? Can you think of another social cause that is not necessarily related to Black people, but that's been impacted by different aspects of Black resistance? Um, and I know that that's a lot, and we could probably do a podcast just on that question. <laughs> but, you know, Jason, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. So when I thought about this topic, I thought about the the movement of queer people, right? LGBTQIA plus people. And I think about the change and the, the relatively fast amount of change that's been made in terms of whether queer individuals, and I use queer to, to refer to, to not just gay or lesbian, but just more of an umbrella in that way. And to say that, you know, from serving in the military or to getting married, to being able to adopt children, to just recently, I believe the, the government has modified the ban on whether gay men can actually donate blood, right? But when we look back at the start of a lot of that, we have to recognize that a lot of what the queer movement did, and LGBTQIA plus movement did, and what they learned from was modeled after the civil rights movement, right? We can look at the Stonewall riots and, and look and see, well, that was actually a Black individual who helped to kick that off, Marsha P. Johnson. We can look at the war on poverty and the poor people's movement. So although not directly related to Black people, engages so many different people of so many different backgrounds, because poverty doesn't really care if you're white, Black, purple, or a Martian. Poor is poor, right? 
And but we look at the movement and we think about the marches that they did. We think about the grassroots organization that they did. We think about the the external lobbying that they did on the government to effectuate change, right? So when we think about all of these different social causes, no matter what your identity may be, I think a lot of it is always rooted in some level of, well, what did we do in the civil rights movement? How can we copy that and use that as a model for success for our particular movement? Whatever that movement may be, fine. But I think it's extremely important to recognize that question. I think it's extremely important to recognize the intersectionality component that that question inherently is asking, right? For example, myself, I am identifying the LGBTQ community, so but I'm also black. So I I think about both things and in that way. So no matter what the movement is, I think it definitely takes a look at what it what the civil rights movement did, and even going back and you know even farther along in the country, thinking about we as black people contributed so much to the founding and the building of this country, right? And to think about the progress that we've had to make and thinking about resistance and not just taking no for an answer. And again, going back to that generational component and keeping in mind that those people, our ancestors, they're not, I like to believe, no one has ever really gone. You know, you may not be able to pick up the phone and call or text the person, but those people live within us. The queer people that came before me live within me. The people that were doing the, the, the war on poverty and the poor people's movement, that fight still continues on and those lessons are still important. But a lot of it, if, if not all of it, is still based on and rooted in what did we as black people do to try to advance ourselves in this country? So that's what I think about in terms of other social movements, not necessarily about black folks that have been certainly impacted by what movements black people have been a part of, what movements black people have started. All of that is all interconnected. Wow. Thank you, Jason. Kim, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. Jason has covered a lot there. He certainly has. I'll I'll add what we've seen with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is just about every group of people. Um, and then I, I'll add that there have been progression since then, along with the movements that, that Jason mentioned. But women, huge. You know, as a woman, in the 70s, 60s, you couldn't, you know, some women couldn't have bank accounts. They couldn't purchase property without a husband, equal pay and equal rights, you know, just by virtue of your gender. But but even before that, let's talk about suffrage, right? Women couldn't even get the vote and white women working hard in this country in the 20s looking for that vote needed black women to move that movement. To, to be very instrumental in that movement. Ida B. Wells was one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, women in history. She fought against anti-lynch. She, she you know, ran an anti-lynching movement. She fought against lynchings in the South. She was run out of the South with threats of, of, against her life for just writing, just writing pamphlets about what interracial relationships really looked like in that time that nobody really wanted to talk about. And then she was used by a lot of white feminist women or white suffrage women looking for that vote 
but also denied equal access in a lot of arenas. And so that's something that a lot of people don't understand or know that Ida B. Wells had to fight and really stood up and showed her true authentic self and was in the public and was in the media and was making it very clear to the world that you can't expect us as Black people to fight for representation and support on this woman's movement and still take a back seat because we're Black. So I say that because there's not been any real movements in this country that didn't fall on the backs of Black resistance. None. And what's really sad to me sometimes is that when we have these other groups of individuals that are really embracing the freedoms that the civil rights movement and these other pioneers have really laid before them, sometimes they forget or they're not even cognitively aware that it was the backs of these Black resistance activists that really set the stage for them to be able to say, me too, I have rights too. I'm seen as a human and as a whole individual. I spent a lot of time in our community here in, in San Diego and in California, really trying to bridge the gap between just groups of individuals and, and supporting just everybody on this front, but being seen also. I, am, I identify as a Black woman. My mother was Black and Mexican. I also identify as a Latin woman. I identify as an Afro-Latina. There is a whole other set of race relations <laughs> in the Latin culture. <laughs> and it's something that I think it, it's worth noting. There's just this kind of sense of the legacy that bonded servitude has brought to people of color, Black people in this nation that carries on in our just kind of mainstream culture and mindset that people don't really appreciate and understand. But had it not been for our ancestors, our fathers, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, our mothers working and doing all that they did, whether it was, you know, clearly bonded and clearly, you know, in, in servitude, this country wouldn't be what it is. The economy of this country wouldn't be what it is. The people in this country would not be who they are. The freedoms that we have in this country would not exist had it not been for the foundational pieces that our ancestors put on this earth. So I just, you know, when I think of anybody saying that I deserve a space to be heard, that ability to even have that statement is rooted in Black resistance. Yeah, and, and just to that point, Kim, I, you know, as you were speaking, my mind thought Nat Turner Slave yep. Rebellion, right? <laughs> and then thought Reconstruction Era and then Equal Protection Under the Law, which is what a lot of these groups, right, travel under to say, well, you're treating me, as my professor used to say, every law treats everyone a little bit differently. The question is whether that difference is unconstitutional, right? And that's the, that's the gray area where a lot of movements are able to have traction. So to talk about just as what you're talking about with the, the ancestors and drawing that blue line from bonded servitude, that rebellion after rebellion and fight after fight to eventually we get to reconstruction and emancipation till we get to civil rights, till we get to today with Black Lives Matter, till we get with the, and even going in between then with the Civil Rights Act and then that starting the Fair Housing Act and economic opportunity. So much that we can just draw through line of what it means to really be Black in this country. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Jason. And so now I think it would be great if we could provide the listeners with some practical thoughts regarding the importance of allies and the role that they can play. You know, in the context of our discussion today, I think an ally is someone who's maybe not Black, but makes a concerted effort to understand the struggle and to help with creating a culture or an environment of inclusion and acceptance. And so for me, allies have been crucial to my personal and professional development. But, you know, Taylor, what do you think is important for allies to know? Yeah, so I'll say there's two things that I think are important. One, for you to truly be a partner, you have to see me for me, for all that I am. So not just what you see at face value, but get to know the other parts of me and allow me to show up as those things. So allow me to show up as this and that. The other thing I'll say is this whole idea of Black resistance, right? Like we think about the word resistance and you can't put away the fact that like to resist something requires effort. Like you're going against the norm or the going against the grain. So like to have to constantly resist day in and day out, that is exhausting. Um, that wears on your well-being, that wears on your mental health. And a lot of times I feel like As a Black person, I'm expected to not feel those feelings or put those feelings away, even Mm -hmm. though they're very valid. And as an ally, you have to, one, recognize that to resist requires effort. And two, allow people to be tired and take time to Mm -hmm. recover as necessary. That was a word. Love it. (laughs) I I, I really, I personally felt that. (laughs) Because it it is exhausting to be so strong. It, it it really is. And that's the thing that some people, yeah. So thank you that for nothing else today. Thank you, Taylor, for that. And a lot of times it's the strength, having to be strong, it's not our choice. It was put on us. Like to survive, you mm-hmm. have to do this, right? So like there's mm-hmm. that part too, but it's, yeah. Strong is not always a compliment. Do you feel that? I feel that way. I don't know if you, the rest of you feel that. I, I don't think it's always a compliment. Mm-mm. Kim, since, uh, why don't you share with us, what do you think are some tips for allies, you know, regarding ways that they can support? So I would say a couple of things. One is, especially in the work environment um, and in the labor environment, don't make your Black colleague or friend in that environment your resource. Don't make them the person responsible for educating you. It's okay if there's a a comparable and lovely conversation between the two of you, if it's a safe space and all of those sorts of things. But to Taylor's point, it can be exhausting when you're kind of dealing with the microaggressions that we deal with on a day in and day basis. When we're dealing with the legacy of, of oppression that we're in systemic racism that we've had to come through to get to the spaces that we're at, having an interface is fine. But, but if you have an issue or a question, seek other resources out as well. Don't always make that part. There's plenty of resources in this world to, to get an understanding. The other thing I would say is give all of us a freedom to be human. There's been this kind of trend of, oh, we're going to have these diverse initiatives in certain organizations and places, but we're going to get the best of the best in the top of the line. And, you know, we're going to get this person and they're outstanding and they shine. But to Taylor's point, we're human and we are tired sometimes and we can't always be perfect and we're not always going to be perfect and we're not always going to be at the top of the line. And sometimes when you start looking at those requirements 
you're putting on unrealistic expectations on people that you don't put on other people that don't look like us. So please make sure that when you're dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion in workspaces, that it really truly allows people to be people, giving them safe spaces, mentorship, sponsorship, room to grow, room to make mistakes, room to learn in those spaces so they feel safe and they don't feel like they have to show up in a way that's not unique to them and that's not true and authentic for them. Um, And then finally, I'll simply say that when we're talking about challenges that we might have, you know, experience in workspaces or just in, you know, as we've come through the process of living and getting to where we're at, don't be so quick to question whether or not our experiences are true to us. Don't be so quick to say, oh, is it really because of this? Or could it be seen this way? Sometimes we just need you to understand that these things happen. They're real. There might be microaggressions in spaces. There might be overt racial interactions that we're experiencing. I can tell you, you know, when Rodney King happened, that was caught on camera. It was one of the first times we had something so severe caught on camera, but it wasn't the first time any of, you know, our ancestors and brothers and sisters had been, you know, subjected to police brutality. And that happened so many years ago, and we're still seeing it, and we're seeing it more because of everyone having a cell phone and social media. So these things still happen. They're still happening. And back then, people would say, oh, well, if he would have, or that's isolated, or, you know, what did he do? What happened before the camera started rolling? Don't do that to us. We have an authentic experience. Be more open and willing to listen. Jason, anything you want to add here? Well, Kim took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, be willing to listen and digest information that's being presented. And sometimes, also to Kim's point, to to not making, you know, a Black employee or, or just to ensuring that there is diversity of, of voice and, oh, there's diversity of voice because we have a Black employee and so we're going to let that person speak on this issue, right? And then that person feels the pressure to be almost monolithic of what it is to be and, and to experience what it is, um, what it's like for the Black experience. So I think it's important to to listen, but I also think it's important to do research and work independently of one other person or two other people in, you know, in your in your space. So whether that means talking to friends, challenging your views, reading a book, whatever it is you have to do to help. Because I think there is this component of, yes, we hear you, but are you listening to me? And then after you're hearing and listening to me, are you doing anything to then act on that information? Because you can listen and hear anything, right? But what are you doing with that? And I think that is what we all can do in organizations and our personal lives, challenging ourselves, pushing ourselves, expanding our beliefs and our, our horizons, and understanding that people are still people. We're all different, but it is something special and unique about what it means to be Black in this country, what it means to be Black in corporate spaces. Those are fairly unique, I believe, um, circumstances we can find ourselves in. So whatever we can do to better appreciate 
those details and that, and that fact, the better off we all will be. Absolutely. I have so appreciated this conversation. It was a conversation I didn't even know I needed, but I'm so glad that I was able to be a part of. You know, just to summarize some of the the key points that I've taken away from this, you know, allowing the space for us to show up as our true and authentic selves, our full and authentic selves. Um, So important, so crucial. Appreciating the exhaustion that comes with Black resistance and having to deal with that on a daily basis and extending the great that goes along with everything that deals with that. And then just also listening, you know, not just hearing what's being said, but also listening and not assuming that, you know, just because you're in a space where there is a Black representative, that that Black person represents all Black people across the board from all time, because that's not how it works. Uh, so thank you all so much for all of your um, your feedback, your thoughts, um, what you've shared throughout this podcast. It has been really, really helpful for me, and I hope it's also helpful for those who have listened. It's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Jason, for chatting today. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this discussion as much as we did, and happy Black History Month. (laughs) Thank you. Happy Black History Month, y'all.